With no knowledge of English and having never flown on a plane, Nick Ferrara decided to move to Australia. He now heads up Lovartz's training operation nationally. His is a story with plenty of twists and turns. So grab a coffee and join us for a chat with Nick in the Coffee Lab. Coffee Lab brings together hospitality industry leaders from Australia and across the world to share their stories and experiences. Join the conversation on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook or YouTube. Nick Ferrara was born near Naples in Italy and studied engineering in Rome before launching into a career in news publishing. He also worked with his mum in a not-for-profit aimed at dissuading young people from a life of organised crime and at some point also started a wind farm with his mates. Then, with no real knowledge of English and having never been on a plane before, he packed up and moved to Australia. Gutsy move. Today, he's National Training Manager with one of the most recognisable names in coffee, Lavazza. Hi, my name's Tom Andronis and with me is Dave Burchett and we're very excited to welcome Nick Ferrara to the Coffee Lab. Welcome, Hi. Nick. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Okay. Hi, Dave. Hi, Tom. Thank you for joining us and taking the time. Thank you. Let's, um, let's start back in Italy, shall we? Yep, let's go. <laughs> How did someone who studied engineering end up in newspaper publishing? Because engineering is boring. <laughs> Simple <laughs> as that. <laughs> um, how, how we all started? Um, studying engineering, I've always been a person... Uh, Aligned with technology, I always love technology. Uh, I did study IT in high school. High school in Italy is divided in sectors, so you can actually choose what you want to study. It's more technical, technical school. <laughs> so I did IT in high school, started IT software engineering. That was even boring, more boring <laughs> that <laughs> civil engineering. Always loved that kind of environment, moved it there. Started working in Rome and uh, as a part-time job at nighttime, try, uh, as a uh, printing inspector. So essentially, small a small uh, publishing firm. They don't really have any printing facilities, so they use third-party facilities to to print. And I was the person of the newspaper in the in uh, in the printer at uh, the printer just to make sure that everything was was done correctly well, and we were meeting all the deadline for for distribution. Were you check Were you checking for smudges or what? <laughs> yeah, what did you look right. at? Uh, at times, at times, yeah. uh, mostly though uh, timeline. So essentially, a newspaper works that you print overnight. Then he goes from the main dis- from the main production goes to the main hub of distribution, and then he splits everywhere. The thing is that when he splits everywhere, he also splits with other di- other couriers. So we had to make sure that our courier was actually leaving the distribution uh, the production place on time to meet those others, and it gets distributed capillarity across across the nation. Being a nationally distributed newspaper, they part was very, very important. Missing that bit, it would have cost us in ton, uh, around uh, 10 grand, which is three months wage mm. of, a, of a, an average, actually more than three months wage of an average Italian. So as you understand, oh yeah. it was a major, That's a lot. It's a major thing. Yeah, and so, so what happened to that business? So that bus- since then, uh, there was something happened. I was in the, in the newsroom, I was talking with, uh, we had a meeting at Son, and the director, which is then then became my mentor, um, had to leave the meeting because a problem arised, and had to deal with a few things. And while he left, I made a f- couple of phone calls. I'm easy at making connection with people. Made a couple of phone calls, fixed the problem. The director came back, the problem was fixed, and I was like, hey, look, Claudio, everything is sorted out. I'll look after the whole thing. And I was like, you know, maybe I can use you in other things. 
and I start collaborating with it. From there, I started my own um, service company, working for newspapers, essentially a small newspaper that needs uh, graphic design or needs a uh, layout or needs distribution or needs printing or needs any other system, website and so on. I was making connection with, putting connection with people together. Uh-huh. And I started this business. I was, um, I was 19, um, 1920. And uh, it was pretty good, pretty decent money. I mean, like the first year we made about 700,000 euros. Wow. Um, not much profit. Because obviously it was everything <laughs> going to pay off <laughs> the people. Uh, yeah. But it was pretty decent for 19 years old. So yeah, I'll say. Happy. Yeah. 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 Pretty happy with that. It's not a bad start. No, no absolutely not. But it's, uh, what happened? Then uh, from there we, with this director, also owner of the newspaper, we actually started our own newspapers. Uh, a newspaper. We started a weekly national issue with a satirical newspaper. Uh, you guys potentially remember Charlie Hebdo yeah. in yes. France, very famous, right? Yeah. It was pretty much the same thing. So it was a very mm. politically incorrect kind of newspaper, uh, uh, comic strips. Um, and we, we ran there, we ran there for, say, uh, four years, three years. And it was pretty, pretty good. It was a pretty decent business. So we talk about four million euros a year, somewhere there. Wow. So uh, we had a decent newsroom. Um, a big number of uh, employees with us, uh, direct and indirect. Obviously, we had uh, people that might this, uh, draw something or write something and send it to as a uh, casual. And uh, yeah, we, we had that. Then we got bored of newspapers. So while we were still doing newspapers, we tried to, to do the wind farm. Yeah, so that, I mean, that sounds like a logical progression, Absolutely. right? Like you go from that's, uh, <laughs> that's how you do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> how did that happen, though? You just went. Let's do a wind farm. Like, we, what were you doing? Like, out for dinner and just went, you know what we should do? Or a few too there. many limoncellos. There, there, was, there was pretty much it. Not much limoncello. At the time was wine. <laughs> but, uh, yes, pretty much it. So, in Europe, um, Europe has been always been ahead at, at, uh, at the wave in terms of renewable energy, right? So, in Europe, uh, European community organized this um, uh, called Energy Fund. Yep. Essentially, since 1994, Europe was charging an extra cents on every single European person or bill. Um, and create a fund of 20 billion euros. That fund then, 10 years later, huh, they start distributing that fund of people that actually were producing electricity. So if you were opening a wind farm or opening just like a small uh, domestic um, solar system, uh, European community will pay you by the production of what you're producing. So producing 10 gigawatts or 10 megawatts or 10 kilowatts, European community will pay you by, by, the, by the megawatt. Um, big business. Absolutely yeah. huge business. Um, so obviously we try to get on top of uh, on top of that one. Did it work? Uh, no, unfortunately <laughs> not. <laughs> unfortunately not because getting uh, all the necessary permit for that it's not it's not a joke. We're talking about like a large a large facility. We're talking about a t- uh, thirty megawatt wind uh, wind farm uh, with uh, thirty. Uh, sorry, 10 turbines over 3 megawatt each uh, done by Vestas. So we met with the guys in Germany to try to get these, uh, these off, the, off the ground. We did put, so you also need to do a study in the land in terms of uh, environmental impact and, and so on. Uh, we did, uh, we put an anemometric pole to check the intensity and the speed of the wind. Uh, we had that up for a year, even though it was for six months. And uh, then Many other things happen. Uh, the newspaper, in the meantime, didn't go didn't go ahead. Unfortunately, it collapsed. The whole 
the little little empire that we put together kind of collapsed with 2009 financial crisis. In the meantime, there also was a political crisis in Italy. There was uh, the major parties split in several different several different parties. Since then, things have gone rogue on a political scene in Italy. Um, our newspapers were political newspapers, and when you are playing in that kind of space, it can happen that you might make someone not completely happy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, some of the financials coming from, from the government stopped all at once. There was obviously the financial crisis. The first thing that people stopped buying is newspapers. Naturally, because newspapers were going down downhill anyway, um, so we pretty much lost lost everything. We, we were very naive to say one word. Um, we tried to run the place uh, by ourselves, so we actually put our, our own money in it, or the money that we put aside. Um, each of us essentially put in around 600 to 700,000 euros, uh, the, three, the three of us. Uh, we tried to run for a year. You understand it's a, it's a, major, it's a major investment. Did not did not work out. Unfortunately, we weren't able to sustain the business for over a year, and we had to so just before we get to you know the next major step um when you were a bit younger you you know you're from a part of the world naples where organized crime is still quite a big problem yeah um tell me about or tell us about the association acobaleno which you worked in with your mum. What, what did that do so um there was an organization that my mom launched uh, when i was around i was 18 and I start collaborating with it. So essentially, as you were saying, Tom, um, that part of the world is a big, it's a com- it's complicated bit. Uh, I'm not even part of the city of Naples. I'm actually a bit just outside the city. And mm-hmm. in small town out there, it, it can get quite quite rough. To a point that when I was young, there was coffee for, for a while. There were people getting shot in the street just like that, pretty much every day. Wow. Uh, it was not it was not a great great place to be. Um, there was a tendency of people easily going into the wrong wrong direction, simply because there is the lack of doing anything. Um, schools in Italy finish at one. People from one to dinner time, they have nothing, literally nothing to do. Study at home, but there is nothing nothing else. There are no sport facilities. There are, there are no parks. So there is, there is literally nothing. Just house, concrete, churches. That's pretty much what, mm. what we got there. And so it was very easy for people to try to find easy, easy money. Um, so the whole, the whole organization started in around carnival, carnival time. Somehow, weirdly, uh, nobody really understands why, but weirdly carnival got dangerous where I'm from. So essentially they were just a band of group of people trying to destroy all the cars they were driving, throwing, throwing rocks, throwing, uh, rotten eggs and, uh, just like bashing cars. It was just a weird. Sounds constructive. Yeah. Um, yes, it was just weird. So um, one of the things we really wanted to do was to give it a space or a place so people can actually spend carnival. And we tried to organize Sunday. So what we did was we just organized like one of the, you know, those truck with all the carnival figures on and yep. try, mm-hmm. try to uh, drive uh, through the town. And um, started that way. Started for carnival, organized the first carnival. And then we decided to actually keep going with, well, we decided to go, to go ahead, they actually continue with the organization. So the organization started with a, just a very limited number of people. We ended up actually having like a big, big following. I mean, like there was like hundreds of young people and not so young people just collaborating with us. 
time on uh, uh, supporting a volunteer thing. Some other just enjoying to spend time with other, um, you know, like-minded people. And uh, it was nice. We were doing photography courses. We were doing uh, dance courses, uh, like very amateur style, but at least it was a place that we could do something. We, there was a, a rundown swim, uh, rundown pool, um, a gym, a school, uh, never used. The gym was just there, and uh, the, the little town council government gave us access to it, and the Saturdays afternoon we're just catching up there. So it sounds like there was a desire for this. I mean, it sounds like the community really got involved. Why do you think that no one had done it before? Was it, was it a, you know, fear or... Of any but repercussions of doing something like that? Absolutely, there's or? a desire for that. People are not intrinsically bad. People mm. are intrinsically good. It's just the lack of uh, the lack of means and the lack of things to do that drive people to be to be that. I was actually reading about a study of this American professor, a psychology professor. There, he created like a couple of experiments. One was the the broken window experiment, and another one, yeah, the, the car. Uh, experiment as well. So he demonstrated that people are not intrinsically good or bad depending on where they are and their uh, the nationality or their ethnicity. People are good or bad in compared to if there is the society around them allowing them to be good or allow them to be bad. Yeah. Um, and it was an incredible thing. Uh, I, I urge everyone to, to read it because it's an incredible piece to read. Um, people are intrinsically good. They just need the right space to actually be there. Uh, when we started, people loved it because they found that they could do something constructing with their lives, something that they don't need necessarily be in the, in the street just going on the scooter and just to smash smash stuff. The reason why they didn't before, people get lazy. People get, uh, Italy is a country that unfortunately demotivates you in some of the things. You'd be like, why would I bother do this? Why would I bother do that? It would be too hard. It's too complicated and so on. Um, Funny, fun, one of the funny things, I'm not a religious person, uh, but I used to be at the time, and I got um, excommunicated, excommunicated. Oh, yeah. Excommunicated. Yeah, yeah. I got excommunicated yeah. because we ran the carnival thing on the main square where the church was and uh, on a Saturday, and we weren't supposed to do, so the, the priest got very angry and excommunicated all of us. Hmm. So uh, I can Lucky tell you. the story. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can tell the story. But you see... Uh, seems like everything is complicated, from a political perspective, from a from a religious perspective, or yeah. just from just the motivational motivational perspective. Was was that the driver to move to Australia then? Because everything was complicated for you in Italy, like life life was. There was a there or? was a big thing. There was a big thing. Um, I did leave because things got got heavy. You know, when you lose a business that you put soul and money into it. Um, you see that everything gets complicated because you're trying to put off, off the ground like a wind farm, and it's very complicated to, to obtain that. There were many other things that happened that it was just was just too much for me. Um, I was lucky enough to find myself in the right place, in the right spot, at the right time, to to pursue some interpre- uh, entrepreneurship as a career, and I was able to to launch a couple of things. Realized that was everything was futile, and I realized actually that my life was pretty bad. <laughs> Honestly, like working 100 hours a week while starting, and it, it wasn't easy. I realized that you get so caught up in what you have, and you don't realize how much it costs you to have that. Uh, one of the things that pushed me was, I read this article of uh, Pepe Mujica. She's uh, an ex-president of Uruguay, 
which uh, in one of his speeches in, uh, in the United Nations in, um, in Brazil, he said, you don't understand how much it costs you to have something. It's not the money that you spend, but the time that you work to get the money to spend. Mm. And then I was like, all right, my life is pretty crap. I have a Porsche, but still crap. <laughs> yeah. And I do suffer from depression, and it was not a good time. Um, I did try suicide several times. Wow. And I was like, okay, this is not, this is not right. Left everything, came here. So why Australia? Because I watched too much Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, no real knowledge of English beyond Absolutely probably what, what you learn at high school, probably. We, um, don't, we do one hour of English in um, school a week. Right. And we do that in Italian. Right. So oh, I good. know all the grammar. I know English grammar. I don't know English words. Well, okay. that's all right. Neither does anyone in Australia. <laughs> um, but <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, with no real knowledge of the language and never having been on an aeroplane before, you, you, you know, up, pack up and move, you know. 16,000 kilometres. Yeah. Why? Yes. Um, I, I wasn't joking. Crocodile Dundee uh, pictured <laughs> yeah. an idea of Australia. It is relaxed, easy place, beaches everywhere, you know, palm tree and coconuts. Uh, that's the idea of what we, that we have in Europe of well, Australia. I'm sure you were disappointed when you landed in Melbourne. Yeah. It was cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My sister wouldn't believe I was actually walking into a store to buy a jacket. She was like, a jacket? Yeah. Do you need a jacket in Australia? Um, but yes, that was the idea of Australia. Like, an easy, a good place to live. My only concern, it wasn't money. It wasn't, it wasn't getting a good job. I wasn't, I wasn't concerned of any of that. The only thing I wanted was I wanted to be happy. That was my only thing. And what better place of the most livable city, right? I mean, like, you, you read about so much, and Australia is such a beautiful yeah. place, and I decided to come here. So it was always a permanent move in your mind? Like, yes, you got on absolutely. the plane, you're like, this is it. Like, going, I came, I'm I finished came. with Italy. I want to go to Australia forever. Absolutely. I was super motivated. I came here with a working holiday visa. I was like, doesn't ma- I'm a very determined person. If I want something, I'll get it. Yeah. I, I try to find the smart way to get it. Yeah. Um, I moved here, decided that this is the place, loved every day. It gets, you know, sometimes you get in, involved in, you know, the dynamic of, of a place and you'll be like, why there is so much traffic on Monash? <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, um, realized that this is a nice place, a nice place to be. Um, and I structured my move. So I arrived here, I was like, I can't, I can't speak, obviously. One of the things that my uh, business partner mentor in Italy told me was, if you don't have your head, use your legs. In, meaning, if you don't understand something or you have like a lack of knowledge in something, at least put yourself out there, trying to do something. Keep moving. Keep moving, exactly. So I remember going on Google, Google Map, right, Italian restaurants. It's like, so at least I will speak with someone. I will make myself understand in Italian restaurant. Go there. I went to this restaurant. I was actually in Sydney the first time. Went to this restaurant and the guy was like, do you speak English? I was like, no. And he's like, do you know how to take plates? And um, I did not understand what he meant. I was like, I, like my face was white. And the guy looked, showed, them the, showed me the plate. Then I, obviously, with, with businesses in Italy, my, my parents always had like a, a beach resort. So I, I grew up in hospitality. And I just got the plate and just put my plate on, on my hand. The guy saw that I was actually able to. And he was like, all right, just come and work. Um, and um, I was uh, a runner food. Essentially, I was a trolley with legs. Uh, but at least it gave me the possibility, obviously, to sustain myself and also to, to st- start interacting with people. 
how long did it take you to learn English? Would you say I arrived here? I do. I do have the answer to that. I arrived here in September, the fifth of September. Start working on the ninth, and I had my first, the one that I defined my first English conversation in December. And how many times did you watch Despicable Me in between? Uh, so many times, so many times. <laughs> so in all of these, the story there is I did learn English by watching cartoons. I read somewhere <laughs> once that uh, cartoons are designed for kids. Obviously, they speak slower, they speak clearer, and they use less complicated words, right? So um, I love cartoons, I love anime, so I was like, great, this is just for me. Very and cool. I started watching Despicable Me over and over and over again. And it was actually, I underst- I'm understanding what they're saying. With that end, I did buy uh, a kid's book. Like, I went to a library, and I was like, I need to offload the grammar of English. And I went to buy a primary school English book to the library and um, just study at night time after work. So, how did coffee happen then? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> because essentially, you know, when what do you do? You do study engineering, then you do newspapers, wind farm and wind coffee. Farm, and like, yeah, it's move to the natural. other side of the world, <laughs> learn the new language, then coffee. Natural progression. Mm. So how st- coffee started? My parents always had restaurants on the beach. My granddad had his own resort for 70 years before he passed away. Um, then we bought ourselves a, a place. Uh, it was this, uh, uh, this big... 3,000 people capacity um, resort, beach resort, like the Lido, classic Lido. Um, I spend more time behind the bar, really, the, the in front of the bar. Uh, and I do drink a lot. So, I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that tells you. That tells you. Um, so, for me, making coffee was easy move. So, and to the point of if you don't have the, the capability, the mental capability, use your, you know, give it a go, try, to, try something. So, I was like, what do I know that I don't necessarily need to talk is making coffee, carrying plates, and that's where coffee started. So I knew how to make coffee, but I knew how to make coffee the Italian way, yes. which is a completely different thing than what's happening here. Yes. So there was a learning curve. There was a very steep learning curve in that sense. Uh, and I started working in cafe, started making coffee there, then became your second barista, then head barista, and then start managing a place, and then end up in, in Lovazza. So that was going to be my next question. How did you end up in Lovazza? And I mean, let's fast forward a little bit. W- what's your role today? So my role now is a national training manager. So I look after all our accounts, training training needs. So if there is any any site that needs training, uh, myself and my colleague, we, we jump on a plane and uh, we make things happen. And why does Lovazza invest so heavily in that? Because we want that our coffee is served correctly. As much as we, we also like to say that, you know, we want that everyone as support and so on, we also want that our quality is not uh, attached by bad uh, bad, uh, bad uh, processes. And what do you actually teach? So we teach pretty much from everything, depending on what the customer needs. We, touch, uh, we, we teach and we, we, we discuss pretty much from the very beginning, very basic of coffee making. So extraction, uh, extraction making the shots, steaming the milk, and granular adjustment and so on to more complicated things, so let's say sensor analysis, a little bit of roasting, and we do other other little things like that, a little bit of latte art if they require. So it, it takes four months to learn a language. How long does it, it take? It does not take four months. <laughs> <laughs> well, to understand a language <laughs> through cartoons. How long does it take someone to make 
learn to make coffee well in your opinion? Is it the same amount of time or is it a lot longer? No, I think uh, I think uh, that question needs to be contextualised. Yeah. The thing is you can learn something and you can master something if you, you are reading, there is somewhere that's written everything about that. You know, you can learn anything of... Uh, uh, of uh, of uh, you know cinematic or mechanic simply because pretty much the entire science is already st- been started. Okay, you can't learn everything of quantum mechanic simply because not everything has been has been already discovered. Mm. Same thing for coffee. You can learn how to make a coffee, but there is so many things that we're still discovering. People are still discovering now in coffee that you can't really learn the entire thing now, and it will take years. Yeah. So, because the thing, you know, there's a there's a trend with semi automation of equipment as well, which I imagine you would have to adapt that to your training style. So, whether you know, in the past there weren't things like automatic tampers or automatic milk frothers or even on demand grinders, um, yeah. you know, they used to be just a manual doser, right? Yeah. Um, so, has that been a thing that you've had to factor into your training courses as well, like the kind of equipment on the bench as well? Absolutely. Our training is based on, uh, it's not a, a general training. It's definitely tailor-made for the customer. So obviously if the customer, they have semi-automatic uh, machine or equipment in general, we tailor-made their, cust- their training for the specific, the specific need. Um, there is a lot of automation out there and there's, there is more and more and more. And I do think there will be even more in the future. Do you see a, a constant uh, or a consistent trend around additional education that people need? So I'm not talking about how to make an espresso or how to texture milk, but education around freshness of coffee or um, proper equipment use. I think that the education piece now, it's, it's a global trend. It's not just in coffee. Yep. It is a global trend. People are getting into a lot into, into anything. People learning how to distill gin. Uh, people learning on doing pretty much everything. Woodworking. People are actually really eager to learn. We have the the means now. You know, we, with the internet, you can really learn anything you want. Uh, you can learn a language by watching the Speakable Me, uh, which was the Speakable Me did too. All oh, right, sorry. Let's let's, let's, yeah. let's clarify that. Um, and um, yes, there is a lot of uh, a lot of that. Um, as I was saying before, a lot of things are still yet to discover to be discovered in coffee. And uh, yes, there is a lot of people trying to um, to get onto that. Absolutely. And you're training people across the full spectrum, right? So presumably, you're training people who've maybe never made coffee before, yep. all the way through to, you know, are you training baristas or people up to barista level, if you like? And and you know, what does that actually kind of look like? What what do you think is the role of the coffee maker or barista? You know, however you want to term it. Yeah. Um, so from our perspective, we try to get the, the barista to come across the entire spectrum. So it's not a one-off training that we offer. We generally follow up on a cyclical, cyclical way. So we take a person, we start from the basic, and then we keep up in different tiers of, of training. Uh, you mentioned uh, coffee maker. We tend to actually divide the coffee maker from a barista. So what we're trying to achieve is there is to actually have people being a barista. A barista is not a person that actually just makes the coffee, but a barista is a person that understands the coffee. Um, there is a very big deal of automation, as we were saying before. Automation will let you go from the very basic to a decent level and give you a consistent cup of coffee and helps you in that way. But to make an excellent cup of coffee, you need to have the human factor into it. And what about, I mean, 
uh, an automated machine can make a really nice cup of coffee, but you know they, they can't talk to you. There is that component as well. There is that component as well. Uh, I feel like person is your psychologist, your <laughs> your uh, your consigliere, your your everything. Um, there, there was this guy once. He came for um, for coffee one day. And you know when you get into into the dynamic of a cafe, it gets busy and the timeline is so quick and everything. And you sometimes you forget it's actually a cool environment. This guy arrived and he was like, "Why are you guys so nervous?" And I was like, "Oh man, you don't understand how busy it is at the moment." And the guy was like, "Yeah, but you do realize that my free time, which is the time that I'm actually happy, it's when I'm here with you guys. Yeah. So your job, it's actually the best of." Or the people you get the best of the people. You're not stuck in a cubicle just doing work. You know, you actually have the best time of everyone. I was like, it's actually a very good way to see it. Yeah, and <laughs> I love it ever since even more. I think that yeah, the customer experience is something that sometimes gets a little left behind by a focus on being cool, as well. <laughs> so um, it, it's very very important. Um, Which I think that's the problem with with uh, one of the problem that the industry is facing now. I think sometimes now, yes, we're learning a lot and we're studying a lot about coffee, but it's somehow alienating from what reality is. Yep. It's getting sometimes too complicated for a badly the gain, just for the beauty of it, just to say like, I've discovered this, but reality forgetting that you still are waiting and uh, still supporting customers and you're still there for customers and you're still actually making their day. So in the... Uh, despite all of the innovation and the cutting edge and all that sort of stuff, at the end of the day, it's a fairly simple service, isn't it? It is. It's a, it's a human relationship. It's just like like the, the person, one of the people that we had in Lavazza, and I have to be honest, he taught me a lot, a great deal, Cristiano. He he keeps saying, and a person that is very knowledgeable, a cool great arm, like it's an incredible person, a great personality in coffee. He keeps saying, it's just a cup of coffee. Like reality is just a cup of coffee. We need to keep that in mind quite often. It's so with Lavazza again. Obviously, like they're the largest family-owned coffee company in the world, yep. right? Third largest coffee company in globally. Yeah, that's a lot of responsibility. Um, I suppose even on the impact that you can have on the world. Yes. So, like w- with that in mind, what are some of the sustainability initiatives that Lavazza are, are active in as an organization? So I, I think. I think we're very lucky working with Lavazza, regardless of the fact that I'm, I'm actually currently working at Lavazza. Like, uh, Lavazza. The fact that Lavazza is still a family a family business has uh, their attention to some of the thematic that they are quite important, and um, I feel personally aligned aligned with it. Um, Lavazza does a great deal of um, initiatives. I was reading this morning of the the latest the latest news in terms of uh, our reach out there. I think Lavazza, uh, behind Lavazza is also a foundation, the Lavazza Foundation. And right now it's in uh, uh, managing 30 projects in 19 countries in the world, um, generally under the banner of Lavazza, Lavazza Tierra. So Lavazza does have a big impact into it. Lavazza also has, uh, internally we call uh, a goal in every cup. So essentially uh, there is a United Nations uh, Growth Sustainability Index or, um, or documents that people should reach a specific target by 2030 or 2040, somewhere, somewhere there. And Lavazza took on the ownership of these, created, um, obviously taking all of these goals, 
adding an extra goal, a Lavazza goal as well. So there is an interest from the family itself to make sure that things are done in a certain way, in a proper way, not only from an environmental perspective, from a human perspective as well. So there is a reach on to the communities out there as well as obviously the impact, environmental impact that we, we have. It, how much um, are the family's values and fam- therefore family values a part of the everyday kind of operation of Lavazza? It is a major thing. It is absolutely, it's an incredible, I've never seen something like that. Uh, we live by our values. We really care about it. Uh, and our way of working has to reflect those, those values. The reality of translating just being a decent human being. Like we just, we really want to have a good time being there, be respectful w- with each other, but also be respectful for the industry that we are, we are in and respectful obviously for the environment. So, we, you know, I mean, sustainability and environmental responsibility, social change, these are, you know, conversations that are happening across the coffee industry. What do you think? Uh, what do you think the next five years looks like in coffee? Whether it's in those sorts of areas or whether it's in a very sort of practical sense. From a practical way, I would say that, as I was saying before, right now coffee somehow became a elitist kind of discipline, right? It's like becoming so cutting edge that it's getting away from what what it is all about, right? People just drinking coffee because in the end of the day, without <laughs> them, we don't have job. Um, so I think it's going back to just make a decent cup of coffee. Um, we saw, I'm seeing a trend of what, five, ten years ago, people would never consider roast a little bit darker or uh, having a little bit robusta in your coffee. I can see all of these people that ten years ago, it was like, oh my God, you guys are doing this. Uh, they're now doing the same thing, uh, following uh, following their lead, simply because it's uh, it's the only sustainable way that this industry can actually go actually go ahead the industry is facing um, unprecedented time for for several reasons and i think it's going back to, to the root of just make a good cup of coffee so the the trends will ebb and flow from this it's sort of like fashion things will come in and go out again i think so you think uh, so like with from lavazza's point of view it's to do what lavazza do really really well and then navigate those trends. What we've been doing for the last 20, under 25 years, really, or under 30 years, nearly. I mean, like, Lavazza has been always original to itself. Um, we do follow the advance in technology and so on, but we also are very true to our to ourselves. I mean, like, Lavazza, proud, we proud ourselves of the, the blending. And I always thought that blending is one of the smart things you can, one of the really smart things you can do in coffee. Um, was having some uh, one of the examples I always give is that blending is like having like single origins is like having a steak right so you have just a steak a piece of meat that's your single origin uh, there can be a great piece of meat by all means but still it's just one piece of meat uh, blending is having a steak with mushroom sauce chips on the side or pepper sauce and so on so I think it's just putting together as a final product and design their product specific for the end customer. Lavazza is true to, the, to that, um, and we do. I, I think that's the, that's um, we keep being very close to that that way. So just before we wrap up, uh, we're going to ask you the same three questions that we ask everybody who appears on our uh, on our show. The first one is, if you could give your twenty year old self some advice, what would it be? Ooh, <laughs> twenty years old was doing pretty well. Um, 
just be happy. Just just don't get hooked up into whatever whatever the world is throwing at you. I mean, like life is simple. Life, as Cristiano was saying, it's just a cup of coffee. You know, you have to you have to. Rel- I think we get so caught up in in many things in uh, in the fact that everyone is out there. Everyone is an entrepreneur now. I mean, like you can't talk with anyone without having a side hustle. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like it's it is such a so much pressure in that. I mean, like just be just happy with what what you are like it's only, very hard only entrepreneurship if it makes you happy right yeah. yes because <laughs> you've got to have the stomach yeah, yeah. Pe- people needs to, to 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 just accept it i mean like that's something that i did understand later on um I, i'm dyslexic and i suffer from the fact that sometimes i wasn't understanding what i was reading it was struggle for me to read i didn't know i was dyslexic until i was a uni so my life got so much better when I was like, okay, this is me. I understand that now that my difficulties are not because I'm stupid or anything, simply because this is the way I'm wired. And just understanding that, it's just great. It just makes you happy. So you know happiness is important. What's, what's another important lesson that you've learned over your career? Or the most important lesson? Oh, well, uh, I've, got, I've got a few of them. I would say the one of uh, if you don't have your head, use your legs. That would be uh, a good... Uh, <laughs> A good way. Another one that I live by is you don't have to know everything. You need to know people that know everything. So you, you connections sometimes is much more important. I'm more important than knowledge at times. Getting the way of uh, knowing a person that helps you in this way or you can learn that way. Uh, another person that can teach you something else that is more important than you just being spending all your, your time trying to learn everything. And if you could start a completely different business tomorrow, what or wind farms, no, <laughs> <laughs> no wind farms and no newspapers, <laughs> what would it be? Uh, Go crazy! It could be anything. Look, it's very simple actually. It's always been now my dream again, and I just like a nice cafe on the beach, <laughs> like a bit more warmer weather than Melbourne. You know, <laughs> 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 so if, uh, I think that would be that would be it. Sounds like a pretty good. Sounds uh, good to me. Yeah, right. Pretty good option. So. We're just going to wrap up. In my intro, I said that doing what you did, packing up, moving to Australia, no language, no job, never been on a plane before, it's a pretty gutsy move. Has it paid off? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think I found my place in the world. Um, it was it was a crazy move. I remember when I told my mom, my mom sent me like a three-pages email that was like, why are you doing this? Are you crazy? Why are you doing this? You're leaving everything behind. I think it was the smartest thing. I've done simply because it wasn't um, it wasn't pushed by society. It wasn't like it wasn't done because oh my god you you have an uh, you have a business let's Im- let's improve that let's sell more or let's make another business or let's do all of this. I was just like screw all of this. I need something to for myself. Did pay off. Um, I find my wife here. Um, I have a son. Sometimes beautiful, sometimes <laughs> less. <laughs> and life is here. Nick Ferrara, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Coffee Lab. If you like what you heard, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to touch base via our social media. Search Coffee Lab on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Talk to you again soon.